It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Sarah Smith-Berry of Frigo Consulting. Sarah is a psychometrician, veteran advocate, consultant, and modern stoic. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach, and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, good morning. Happy 2022, everyone. Uh, I am Tom Bradshaw. With me, of course, is Dr. Jeremy Lukaba, and Sarah Smith-Berry will be joining us via audio in just a short while. So, Jeremy, today you have selected for us, and maybe this was a bit more Sarah, uh, but the do's and don'ts of science-based assessment in the talent acquisition process. Can you uh, give that to us once again, maybe in English? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot, and I see that Sarah has has joined us. Um, Sarah, do you want to click on your mic just to say hi? See if we have you fully? Yep, here I am. Can you guys hear me okay? Awesome, yes, and sound Fantastic. perfect. Great. Great. So yeah, the um, there, there's so much that's going on, and there's so many. I mean, there, we see several, several, so many companies that are really starting to pop up now that are helping with the recruitment efforts. And I think as IEO, as I, industrial organizational psychologist, I think that a lot of people get stuck into just a, a short um, kind of array of, of personality assessments, and that's all that can be used for the employment process when you're looking at science-based, when in fact there's hundreds for different skill sets, for job types, um, for different industries, and there's there's so much that goes on. And I think the pro- we've got to understand really, it's really important to understand the process that it, that needs to be taken in order to go and have that that teamwork, right? From either a, an HR person to the hiring manager, um, hopefully an IO is included in that, but it's a relationship that needs to be had because you have to understand there's gotta be a needs analysis. You have to understand um, what has changed in terms of team dynamics, if there's new leadership, in terms of what is needed in a new hire and going back to the job description. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of pre-work that needs to be done but again, it's that work up front, and it doesn't have to be a lot. Some people may see it as a lot because it's different and it's scary sometimes. But it's that pre-work that's important so that you do things and spend the time up front so that you're not correcting errors and hiring candidates who aren't exactly a good fit. So Tom, I'll turn it back over to you. I will mention, so this is a great, this is an open mic. Um, if you have been on our deep dive events before, Everyone is encouraged to to speak, to share their expertise, to ask questions. We have so much talent and so much uh, knowledge here in our audience. Uh, Tom, I will throw it over to you and let you take it away. Well, thanks very much, Jeremy. And, And Sarah, maybe I'll throw it over to you because the first question in my mind is, 
has this process changed over time? I mean, I've been in the workforce for, you know, I hate to say it, but probably, you know, close to 40 years now. And, and how has that process of talent acquisition changed over that time period? I think more importantly, Tom, in this, in this, you know, topic of what we're discussing today is not just the talent acquisition process change, but the relativity between why are we implementing assessments in the first place? So historically, the reason for implementing assessments was kind of one-sided, right? It was for the, the company to benefit um, by lowering the amount of cost that it took to acquire and retain talent long-term. Now, people will argue with me and they will say that's still the same today, and it is in many places. But I find that the organizations that are doing it and doing it well are those that are approaching it from the employee experience perspective. So they're really looking at employee experience from a cradle to grave perspective. So from the moment that employee or candidate is brought into the pipeline all the way through their exit interview, um, that's really when we can see the beauty of assessments take place. Now, where do these assessments take place sort of at at what level of an organization? Because, I mean, there are some organizations that go through an entire hiring process. They'll talk to multiple candidates. Uh, but there's also times where, you know, we need somebody and sometimes they'll just go through some resumes and hire somebody. So what are the benefits of, of doing all of this evaluation? I really think it starts by asking the question, why are you using an assessment in the first place? So a really unpopular but true fact is that the number one predictor of job performance is actually cognitive ability or a standard IQ test. People hate that though, right? Because that has adverse impact for minorities especially um, and usually has to do with more social um, constructs than, than what a lot of companies are willing to kind of play around in because it can, it can look bad, right? The, the problem is not in the assessments themselves. It's in the times in which you choose to use them, right? So it depends on many things. It depends on construct validity. It depends on, you know, your measure of adverse impact. So that's talking about what groups may have um, a negative impact as a result of using the assessment. Cost, okay, that's another big one that companies are going to want to pay attention to. So you have to think about cost to develop the assessment. Are you developing it internally or are you sourcing outside? What about cost to administer? What about cost to maintain long term? Also interesting is candidate reactions. So prior to the pandemic, we saw many people very pro assessment because it was something that was done usually on a smaller scale. Now we're seeing companies that are really scaling this lot like wide across their entire organization and requiring candidates to do assessments before they've even spoken to someone past a recruiter. So in that, in that instance, it's less favorable, right? Because it's, it's, it's not really um, playing to the candidate's interest at that point. It's kind of like creating a hurdle for them. So it really is at the end of the day about asking all of these questions, looking all of at the situation at hand and saying, is it even appropriate to be using an assessment right now? Because that is actually the question that I start out with. And I know that that probably um, loses me a lot of money in the, in the short term, but in the long term, it, it really does create a sustainable model for whatever client I'm working with. Because if they're just using an assessment because they found out their, their competitor was doing that, then that's the wrong answer. 
you should be sourcing and using an assessment. First of all, it should take you just as long to source the assessment as it does to implement it. Hmm. And that's also an unpopular opinion. You should be trialing this out internally and and testing it um, internally before you make any sort of long-term commitments to your implementation plan. Um, Again, that goes back to cost. Um, Many companies don't want to do these sort of pilots. But the thing is, it it really depends. Do you want to spend the money up front or do you want to spend the money out of your pocket long term if something should go wrong? So it really is about about being informed and just, um, yeah, just making sure that you have all the information about why you want to do it in the first place. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I, I keep an eye on the job banks just to see what's going on out there. And I'm noticing that more and more, and at least I'm hearing that as well, that even when you're first applying for a position, there's usually a series of questions that the employer has put together. Now, sometimes they actually seem like there's been some thought behind there, but sometimes it seems just like maybe someone in the office has put a few questions together. Is that where the evaluation process should begin? Okay, so standardization in the acquisition process is really important, okay? Um, Reason being is we're trying to minimize bias in hiring as much as possible. Now, at the end of the day, people hire people that they wanna work with. We're never gonna get around that. That is just fact. Um, They want to hire people that are more like them than not, that's also fact. Um, And so by using assessments, we can actually employ them in a way that we are sort of putting a lens over that bias. So it, it, it is a way to, to check our own biases, to, to, to actually put something in front of that bias. Now, as far as preliminary questions and that, those are standardized. Most organizations have them. I mean, unless you're talking startup where they really have no idea what they're doing from the very beginning. Um, I wouldn't even advise them to start with assessments. Honestly, most startups, you know, they are still trying to understand what their culture even is. Um, (laughs) And they're still trying to divide, you know, design their organizational structure and everything else. And throwing an assessment implementation plan on top of all of that mess can really turn into it becoming almost dogmatic. Okay. Because we don't want to use assessments in such a way that we're putting, painting people into boxes. And they can become very excited about the potential of assessments and how they can be applied. And, and wow, it just makes things so much easier. But then what happens is that becomes the culture. If you do it too soon, and then you're like, oh, well, you're personality or you have this trait, so you can't do this. Um, that's a problem, right? We don't want to use assessments to create situations in which we're telling people that they can't do something. We're using assessments to make sure that we are leveraging people in the correct ways. I don't know if that answered your question, Tom. I think it does. (laughs) Uh, But Jeremy, let me come back to you now because the world has changed over the last couple of years. We're now in the remote or hybrid workforce and a lot of hiring and recruiting is being done online. So it's, it's not like a few years ago where if I was in line for a position, I, you know, I might have to come in and sit down with somebody and we go through these questions, you know, we do the assessment that way, but now we've moved online. So how has that changed things when it comes to acquiring new talent? 
Um, first, before I, I get into that, I want to mention there's a really good discussion going on in the chat, and I would love to hear um, from from any anyone. And it, it, the hand raising function is is completely available. Would love to have anyone come up. Um, uh, let's see, somebody posted a um, Sarah. You'd be interested in this. I know that you're on your your phone today, but somebody posted a meta analysis challenging the the um, assumption that critical that um, Cognitive ability is one of the, the better performers. I would love uh, Nathan Mondragon's here today uh, with Higher View. I believe would love to get um, you speaking. Nathan is uh, an absolute whiz uh, at this stuff. So Nathan, please feel free to to raise hand and, and join in on the conversation. Uh, with that, Tom, do you recall what your original question was? Because I forget what it was. Well, that's okay, because you, you provide us with good information. I was wondering how basically the pandemic has changed things when we're looking at recruiting talent and these assessments. You know, I'm not going into an office anymore to sit down with somebody. It's more than likely going to be online. So how has that changed this process, and has it changed it for the better? So I mean, with it's, it's there's a new... Um, there's a lot of new trends going on, and I don't mean trends as in trendy. There's a lot of new things that are going on, especially when you when you look in at AI. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people here. Please feel free to to, to speak up that are those, that are very very focused on AI and in that actual space. So Tom, kind of like that question that you asked Sarah, when are these assessments used? When you have a broad, you're looking at AI that kind of thing to be used at top of funnel. When you have a lot of candidates to try to whittle down, right? And then you're looking at more of the um, kind of the middle of the process. And again, every company is going to do this a little differently. So there's companies that are going to change their processes. But a lot of times when we're looking at middle of funnel, you might have some of those video interviews where they're analyzed by AI and then they're kind of taken over and then also reviewed by a recruiter, potentially by a hiring manager. And then when we're looking at more of these assessments, more that we're talking about today, those are once someone's further along in the hiring process. And everyone, I'm going to read off because there are so there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of assessments that can be used. And is back and speaking to what Sarah said about determining which assessment is going to be better, we often get stuck in our own world. Um, but I'm going to name off because you you can determine which assessment you want to use based on a lot of different factors based on your assessment type um you know what do you want personality do you want cognitive ability your purpose are you looking for a selection development and then we get into that whole conversation of high versus low stakes situations and again you, you've got to make sure you have a a test that has the right psychometric properties again if you're in hr your whole you know your, your job is based on keeping the company out of litigation so you want to make sure that these assessments any assessment that's used for a high stakes situation is, you know, it's got its validity in check, its reliability in check, just to put it um, on a fundamental level. But um, also, you know, you can have tests based on your, your level, uh, whether you're an entry worker, hourly worker, executive, CEO. You can also base it on, on industry and, and occupant, uh, exact, you know, specific occupation because there's so many different tests. I'm going to name off, let's get my, just a, a few just to get some of these names of these tests out there. And again, you've got to look at these tests independently. And there's a lot of 
ways that you can do that. You can find your test provider, download a sample report. You can look at the technical report for each assessment, which range from anywhere I've seen. I've seen them as few as a technical report, as few as five pages. That include all the, the, the psychometric properties of it to something like uh, your Hogan or your 16PF. And you've got over 200, almost 300 pages for a technical report. Um, just to name a few here, coaching style inventory. You've got your employee aptitude survey. Um, let's go down. You have, uh, you know, I'm seeing j just a, what I'm looking at here, about 10 different assessments just for accounting. Whether you wanna um, assess their knowledge of, of principles, of underlying like accounts receivable, of cost accounting, uh, just specific math skills. So you can go with skills. You've got a adaptive reasoning profile measuring your professional managerial and executive level candidates how they can solve problems so uh, applicant profiles for management um, career automotive retailing scale uh, core abilities assessment hey jeremy can i interrupt you just for a sec yeah. i think what's more important rather than that is just looking at the different types of assessments so you've got like cognitive ability you've got personality you have integrity you have physical fitness you have biographical data you have job knowledge you have writing capability you have behavioral interviews those count as an assessment right situational judgment tests work simulations um the, by the way the military loves work simulations it's one of their favorite and there's a good reason, right? Because the validity of them is incredibly high and they're actually not that expensive to implement once you have them designed. So um, I think, oh, and to respond to the cognitive ability meta-analysis, I'd love to see that um, because again, like anything in the literature, it's pretty easy to find something supporting your side, um, especially when um, there's so many differing views on how to measure, right? So that's one thing about IO psych that's interesting is we always have ways to measure things differently, but I would love to see that. Um, so I think it's really important that we don't, again, because of our own experience using things like Pymetrics or whatever, um, we don't find ourselves in a situation where we're like, oh, well, these are the batteries of us, or this is the battery of assessments that I use, this is what I'm comfortable with. They're, that word comfortable, okay, comes into play that is where you're like, oh, well, I'm an expert in this. Okay, great. But at the end of the day, if you are approached with a situation where, you know, that isn't something that should be implemented or used, then guess what? Your expertise is invalid at this point. So I think it's really important as IOs that we understand just the array of options that are out there. And we're constantly curious and testing and pushing the boundaries of the different types of combinations and ways that we can approach assessments in the workplace without becoming, um, you know, sort of, uh, what's the word? Making the candidate experience a, 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 a non-good one. A bad one? one. <laughs> a bad one, yeah, a non-good one. I, I hate saying bad, but you know what I mean? Like just not, not, uh, not pleasurable. So, you know, again, it goes right back to the beginning question is, why are you doing this? Are you doing this to lower cost? Are you doing this to make it easier to find your unicorn candidate? Because if that's the delusion you have in your mind, then that's, you know, the outcome that you're going to get. And if that's what you're promising to your clients and customers, it, you'll just be replaced in a few years by the next best. That's yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, great sort of foundation for our discussion today. And I see we do have some hands up. 
So, Deborah, let's go for you. Uh, why don't you unmute you? Sorry, unmute your mic and join us here on stage. Hi, everyone. Thank you. I love this discussion, and I am intimately involved in this um, developing assessments, analyzing, doing validity studies, etc. And I, I'd like to offer just a little different perspective. And I did find an article, which I'll try to share in the chat, that actually rated or um, scale the different types of assessments um, with what is confirming kind of this discussion all the way from, you know, just traditional interviews and resumes and those kinds of things up to cognitive. But the uh, top of the scale is multi-measure assessments. And I <clears throat> have been fortunate fortunate enough to work with a new company that is developing a competency-based assessment using multi-measure. And, you know, I obviously am biased towards it, you know, because I'm helping them develop it and they use a SAS program uh, or application so that it is pretty much self-serving to the client. So the client can um, manage the process themselves and it takes the pain away. Now, this may not be what everybody who's an IO wants to hear, but the, the client does not have to get certified in all these assessments. And there are six, six assessments that have been researched for over 50 years that are used in some form of combination per job type. So there's a database of over 800 job types that I support and help companies. So it's, and it's very reasonably priced. So it's easy for the client. And from the candidate perspective, you know, yeah, they have to take the assessment, but what it offers is the employee life cycle. So you can use it at the beginning to hire and it is a job fit, the competencies are soft skills. They're not the hard skills. So they're transferable and you could easily use it um, before, you know, to hire people or in the current workplace. So for the current work environment that's so volatile and trying to retain employees and upskill them or transfer them to another job, this is an ideal assessment to use internally because uh, they can uh, analyze competencies and understand if they do take another position, where do they need some coaching and development? I just wanted to offer that, and I will try to find that article. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks for that very much, Deborah. Uh, let me ask you, because I was a little bit confused on whether the, the assessment is in development or are you actually using it now and tracking some of the people? No, yeah, we have clients. It, it's about a two-year-old assessment, uh, but it's you know you know product development it never stops, right? So, right. <laughs> and we're we're always um, upgrading the platform, adding job types, etc. And you can custom, you know, we we base it on the job description and um, identify the competencies per job, and you can uh, give us you know, an individual job description. So if it's not in the database, we'll create it for you. Uh, the application is revealed if you're interested. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, Rebecca, I see your hand up as well. Let's go to you. 
Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering if um, we could improve the, the candidate experience by, um, and also maybe the employer brand, by um, making the results of the assessments available to candidates, because, you know, a lot of times, especially, um, you know, like, um, if you get like later in the process, you know, you can be taking like, you know, two, three, um, you know, 40 minute, 60 minute assessments each. Um, and then to go through, you know, such like a, a laborious process, and then to just, you know, like, get rejected and, you know, like not get any feedback, um, you know, just doesn't really seem fair from, from the candidate perspective, even if that candidate isn't part of your organization. And, you know, also just from a perspective of just us being IO psychologists and, you know, going back to the APAs, um, you know, like what it means to be a psychologist, improving the lives of um, organizations, individuals, and society. To me, this seems like an easy way that we can encourage organizations to give back to individuals and society. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear your response to that. Well, let's go to you on that, Sarah, because can we make the job, you know, acquisition process easier? Can we make it better for the person who's actually doing the assessment? And can we give them feedback even if we don't hire them? I would say that it's imperative that you provide feedback. And so the reason that that doesn't happen a lot of times is that what will happen is the assessment implementation plan will be run by one line of business and then recruiting is separate from that. Um, and really the key is making sure that those two lines are communicating. Um, it's more work, but it, you can also integrate it into the process. A lot of uh, the assessments and stuff that are available now have dashboards and user interfaces and everything else. So it's really just a matter of making sure that it's implemented into the existing um, communication structure with candidates. You can set automated, automated emails and stuff like that with reports and everything else. I think the reason it doesn't happen um, is that they don't want candidates diving into any sort of report or anything like that. And then coming back and saying, I didn't get the job because I was X, Y, Z. Um, so setting a delay, um, doing it, you know, uh, 30 days post is a good way to make sure that you're still providing people with the information um, that they're in my mind entitled to um, without kind of creating you know, any sort of drama around, you know, whether or not they were chosen because of it. You know, that's another thing that's, it's imperative that when you're going through this process that it's, your hiring decision should not be made solely based on the results of an assessment. Um, it should be a piece of the puzzle. It should be a piece of the information. Um, it should help someone, say, a new manager who's just taken over a team who is trying to better understand the soft skills of the team and, and make sure that they're bringing someone on board that complements their existing process. It should be helpful, not hurtful. Um, right. And, you know, another thing I, I'm really curious about the assessment that was brought up before, I, I believe your name is Deborah. I'm sorry, I'm on my phone, so I can't see everyone. Um, but I would be really interested to know about any sort of cross-cultural studies that are being done or whether or not that's US-based only samples, just because you know, even, you know, 
out looking at the cross-cultural studies of an assessment, it really makes it more inclusive, right? And so it's a default way to make sure that the assessment you're using is inclusive is looking for those cross-cultural studies. Um, so that's another part of the sourcing uh, puzzle that I spoke about before is making sure that you're looking into assessments that have um, taken that into account, that not everyone is an American or born an American that works in America or Canada or wherever. Very, very true. Uh, great. I see hands popping up. Uh, Dr. Jeremy, we're going to go to you first, then Linda Ann will come to you, and then Dr. Danielle will get to you as well. Tom, give me the hook if I go on too long. I want to make sure that I uh, give Linda Ann and Danielle. So give me give me the hook. So to, to go back to um, and continue with uh, what's after what Rebecca was asking, that goes into this, the employer brand, you know, how it, it really falls into that. And, and companies are now in hi are hiring, you know, employee brand managers and whatnot, because that helps in their recruiting effort. Is this the kind of company that I want to work for? So this is where as IOs, um, you know, companies are finding more and more, I need an IO on staff. I need an, an industrial organizational psychologist to, to be uh, working in my company. So as far as giving the results to candidates, yes, it's, it's very time consuming. When you look at it from, and Linda, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, when you look at it from an HR perspective, the more of a paper trail, the more information that you give uh, potential candidates who don't get the job, the more you open yourself up to problems that may result in litigation, right? Um, and so that could be a reason right then and there. The other thing, it depends on the assessment that's being used. Some assessments can be used by an HR manager, depending on the, the level of interpretation that's needed. And as these psych assessments we all know are graded, depending on who can do it. Do you need to have a master's or a PhD in a science-related field in order to administer and interpret and debrief with these assessments? Or is it something that can be used with someone with, with that hasn't had that particular education or certification level? So that depends there. You can't, you can't have a, you can't have someone take a, uh, you know, uh, a 16 PF comprehensive insights report and then have a hiring manager give them a debrief on it. You just, it, you can't do it, but you can have them do maybe a, a competency development report. So there's different types of reports for different situations. So the other thing too, is when you have these assessment results, that's why I was saying earlier with having that communication between the recruiter, the, the hiring manager and whoever else needs to be involved, because you can't, a lot of these assessments have, they've got, you know, rightfully so, they've got graphs and they're colorful and they paint a picture. But they also can paint a picture that doesn't accurately describe the candidate to the untrained eye. And that person with the untrained eye, let's say it's the hiring manager and you're giving them these assessment results, it's no different in some cases, it's no different than, you know, getting Consumer Reports magazine to find out which car to buy, looking through all the data, and then giving the magazine to your seven-year-old and saying, which car should I buy? And they pick the one that looks the coolest. So you, you, you can't do that. You have to have someone who's looking at these results in com and you have to have them considering what are the top three to five skills that I really need this candidate to have? What are we lacking? What are the gaps now that we've had with the change in leadership in this particular department? 
what um, in terms of the culture, in terms of the you know their productivity style, their influence style, task versus people. There's so many different things that need to be considered, and it really is that kind of a process. You know, do you want to spend five hours up front, or do you want to spend twenty hours trying to find the new candidate? I it's want that coolest car. <laughs> It's, a, it's that give or take. So, Linda Ann, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. That's my, Tom, I love it. That's, that's the verbal but nonverbal hook. I love it. <laughs> Linda Ann. Um, good morning. I, I just want to, Jeremy hit it on the head. One of the things I'm, um, I have a question about on the head was, you know, really when, and primarily it's kind of like where does this apply in the whole scope of organizations? Right. So, I mean, are we looking at people who have 20 employees or 70 employees and things like that? Because from my perspective, it sounds like a very sophisticated process. Right. And what is the legal liability of having someone utilize those things improperly, you know, not having the skills? Um, how do they even sort through which ones are OK for them to use? But really, um, how do how do we get this information appropriately into all the people's hands that really need it that are facing say the big resignation you know the great resignation um is it just for companies who have a very sophisticated human resource department or hiring process or so forth or can it be you know anybody who goes to some kind of you know networking mixer you know where does that break happen and how do we get people properly educated on what they can use? And, um, you know, is there a size break, things like that? So that's my initial questions. Well, let's take it back to either Jeremy or Sarah there. When is this appropriate? And, you know, and, and some of the you know, do's and don'ts here. There are so many questions that have to be asked before you can determine that. So that's why I have really complex intake forms um, because it actually saves me a lot of time going back and forth, answering questions with a potential client um, because by answering out my intake form, I'm able to kind of get an idea of where I would start. Um, so here's the thing. It's not as simple as looking at the size of the organization. It's, it's more actually about how tall is the organization? Are they like a traditional like hierarchical structure or are they more flat, like more modern organizations and startups are tending to push themselves toward like a more flat organization? Um, because generally speaking, many of the assessments, at least that are scalable to larger organizations, um, they have really easily integratable solutions. So they'll integrate with your human resource management information system. Um, it's, it's really, really come a long way. Um, so at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to budget per head. Um, and that's honestly the way I prefer to price because as an IO, I wanna make sure that all of you know, solutions and things that are presented to organizations are presented in such a way that it's inclusive to both a small business owner and a large organization. So that's how I rate my pricing structure when it comes to working with clients. I price per head because that way it's the same price per employee 
no matter the size of the organization, meaning I can work with an organization that is only looking to do this for 20 head, or I can work with an organization who's looking to scale it to 10,000 or, you know, an entire line of business. Um, But yeah, most of these assessments, or at least the most popular validated ones that have been around for a really long time. That's another thing. I, there's so many new players in the market and a lot of them look great, right? On paper, they look amazing, but I hesitate because they just don't have their chops built out yet. So there's a number of them that I'm looking at and I'm like, yeah, I'll work with them, but I'm not going to work with them for a few years. Um, and then there's assessments that have been in the industry for forever. And anyone who knows me knows like there's one in particular that I find is used in many organizations. And I'm surprised that it's even used because of its history. Like it has a really dark history. Um, And if anyone's interested in what that assessment is, I'll talk about it offline. I just don't want to offend anyone who might be on the call that uses that. Um, So again, it's all going to come down to, you know, the preference of the practitioner. And I know that I'm going on and on and on and talking, but really Linan, at the end of the day, it's, what are those questions, the answers to those questions, like a a simple intake and why do they want to use it? What is their end goal? Because if you don't know the end goal, you can't develop an implementation strategy and you can't solve whatever problem or pain point it is for your client. So yeah, that's, that's, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was a good piece of saying, um, Mark, I do see your hand up. Linda, and I want to come back to you first, just to see if you have a follow-up. I do. Um, the other thing that I, the other question that I really had to, to with this is what data, what return on investment data is out there so that as we say promote doing assessments as part of a hiring process, what value is, is the um, employer potentially going to see, you know, is it the, you know, the average life cycle of an employee, say three years, where if you take this time and spend this money, you're more likely to have somebody who's going to stay seven years or whatever. What's that real turn of a uh, return on investment for people? And is there data out there for that? Value, Sarah? Yeah, each individual assessment will have its own set of numbers that go along with it. However, I find that if you are a practitioner, especially if you're an outside practitioner like myself, um, it's more important that you're looking at what battery of assessments you're using and your own results. So making sure that if you are a practitioner and you've got clients that you are documenting everything. So how many people you're working with. And I always say head and it sounds like I'm talking about cattle, but the reason I do that is because that's like a really easy way for me to like sort charts and stuff is by head. Um, so, so there is value in, in these there, assessments and oh, there is a return. There is. Of course there is. Of course it, there is. Is there it's any just, statistical information? Yes. Um, so like, okay. So for example, um, one of the assessments that I use particularly, um, for senior level leadership only. Okay. And the reason I do that is because cost, all right. And, and time intensity, um, that it requires for this particular assessment. Um, but for that one specifically, I use that one a lot for my transitioning military senior leadership that I'm working with. So I work with a lot of like colonels and generals that are leaving military service and entering the public sector in high level positions at organizations like Ernst and Young and USAA and 
you know, Wells Fargo and a lot of financial institutions, believe it or not, will hire um, senior level military who are leaving um, service after like 20 years, right? There is a huge gap between what a senior leader in the military is expected to do as far as social skills and soft skills and what corporate America expects of them, right? And so by using this assessment, I'm able to kind of identify communication preferences and cognitive preferences and circumstantial preferences, even like how do they behave under pressure and what does that look like and how does that mirror to their employee counterparts. So that particular assessment, though, I've used with now, let's see, this year alone, I've used it with almost 200 individuals. I'm sorry, this year, we just went into the new year. So that was last year. So 200 individuals um, last year. And my results from that were based off of um, the standard statistic of most of the time when a service member leaves um, service and goes into civilian employment, they don't last six months. Um, especially if it's a high level position, they either end up getting fired or they end up unemployed because they just can't adjust to corporate culture that quickly. Um, so all of the people that I have assessed were able to gain employment within three months, which is a huge feat for a veteran. Um, and that's again, like 200 people. And then they were able to, the majority of them, I have about an 82 um, percent success rate, which is really high um, for them staying on longer than six months. So closer to that year time frame. Now they do, there's still a lot of turnover um, and veterans do tend to jump around um, between organizations, but that's more of a systemic issue. Um, really the challenge is just getting them to stay somewhere longer than six months. Right. Um, and so it really does I've, bring the value. It does. It does. Um, it's just, it really depends on, again, why are you doing it? So the reason I use that assessment specifically for veterans, specifically entering high level positions within organizations, is because I understand the amount of impact that they're going to have on a number of individuals within that company. And so it's, you know, that trickle down effect. So you want to make sure that they are completely empowered. And that's what I focus on is empowering that individual with the information that they need and understanding their situational response to stressors. That's a big one, as well as uh, communication style, because most uh, military or at least veterans have a very direct communication style and can sound kind of curt um, when they're put on the spot and that sort of thing. So working with them and showing them that, you know, hey, uh, you don't necessarily have to communicate that way. Let's go back to your natural communication preference style. So it's more of a rediscovery um, process, if anything. Well, but, sometimes and, there are really better ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, another one is um, this whole concept of empathy. Oh, I could go down that rabbit hole with you for forever. Yeah. But um, em empathetic response is another really interesting one. So offline, if anyone's interested in the data that I have on that, it's really, really interesting when it comes to communication preferences uh, within our veterans. So and, and Deborah, I see your hand up and I'm, 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 I'm expecting you've got some great um, things to add here when it comes to the value. But Mark, you've been waiting for a while. Let's go to you next. Yeah. Um, well, I had uh, actually three things I wanted to mention. First of all, regarding the cost of assessments in plural uh, and the concept of incremental validity, I think, comes into play here because you can have three different assessments, but 
if they're measuring somewhat of the same thing and the second and third don't add any validity to it, then you're wasting your money. Uh, and for those of you who use regression analysis, it's the concept of multicollinearity. You know, get rid of the ones that don't actually add anything. Uh, secondly, we can have the best assessments. And if the job design's not right, you're still going to have a lot of turnover. You know, so uh, you, you can go into a client and really uh, look at the job and do your due diligence and come up with great assessments. And if it's a meat grinder, it's going to grind them up just like anybody else. And the third thing is, you know, applications are actually, uh, at one time, I know, and I don't know if this is still true, but they were considered a test by the EEOC. Now, my question is, uh, has the, did the last administration really do a number on the EEOC or what? I'm not sure, but I've seen a number of large employers right now asking dates of graduation. And I even saw one asking date of birth. That would have never flown uh, 10, 15 years ago, but they're doing it now. And I'm sure that they're buying the uh, services of an ATS, you know, with a, uh, you know, part of the enterprise uh, software that they have. And that's just the, someone, somebody put it in there and they're asking it. Another thing that'll turn applicants off is the knockout questions that if you wait until the end of uh, when they have to go in and fill out all of these uh, fields, you get to the end and they see uh, some verbiage about if you've falsified anything on here, it's grounds for later termination. And then they pop the, the four or five knockout questions on them. Like, uh, you know, they say in their uh, position description, preferred some type of esoteric uh, 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 software. They need to have experience with it. Then they get to the knockout questions and it asks, do you have experience with this software? You answer no, they never even see your application. So <laughs> is the EEOC asleep at the wheel? I'm not sure. Jeremy, Sarah? I think Linda, Ann, or Deborah might be able to best answer one of these with their expertise level. Well, let's go to you, Deborah. Well, I don't, I don't know that I can answer much about the EEOC. I was going to contribute to the previous discussion, if that's okay. Um, and I'm not disagreeing with anything, um, really, that anybody said. Uh, but I, I do want to add to that discussion. And like Sarah, I do a lot of work with clients across the board. And even though I did talk about one particular assessment, I use a variety of assessments too, depending on the situation. And certainly for executives and uh, different companies or industries, you know, whatever their need is. So uh, looking at that and picking the right one. So I do. I spend a lot of time with different types of assessments, but when we were Linda Ann's uh, comments or questions about um, certification or size of the organization or how much is involved in the cost and ROI and all those kinds of things, I have done quite a few webinars around um, ROI and KSAs 
as they relate to assessments. So if Linda Ann, if you're interested in that, hook up with me on LinkedIn, I'd be happy to send you those recordings that might help you with that analysis or answer some of your questions. And, you know, just getting back to the competency assessment and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not trying to push it. I just, I, I want to help educate because my research in working with this company identified that there are hardly any competency-based assessments and most organizations uh, don't even use job descriptions. You know, HR people are lacking even that. And in my mind, using a competency-based assessment, which gives you a score per competency, takes all of this anxiety away of worrying about, you know, are they fitting in a box? Are we worried about putting them in a box and labeling them? Because you can use competencies in your performance management system. You can use it in development. You can easily give this very simple readable report that only gives you these scores per competency and a job fit um, score to the hiring managers. And it's easily interpretable with strengths and weaknesses associated with it. So it takes all the pain away from that concern and the assessments are standard, heavily researched with psychometric validity, et cetera. Um, multicultural, uh, Sarah, that you asked before, some of them have been um, uh, normed against those kinds of situations. This competency-based assessment is taking those and combining those. And so you have extreme validity that predicts job performance and job fit. Well, thank you for that. Mark, if you don't mind, I've got a question for you that sort of popped into my mind as you were oh. talking. <clears throat> We've talked about, you know, standard assessments or the various assessments, and it's important to choose the right assessment. But how much does it come back to the skill of the IO or who's ever interpreting this information to get it right? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, if, if you're purchasing uh, a standard type assessment, like say one of cognitive ability, then a lot of times it'll come with printed guidelines. Uh, you know, whoever is the vendor can provide the guidelines. Now, uh, in terms of actually developing the system, that is probably going to rest heavily on the I.O. In other words, going in, looking at the job, deciding, you know, making making wise inferences between uh, assessments and the end result. And then I don't know how long the, the I.O. person would hang around, but then can it be validated? Can the predictive validity absolutely uh, be established? OK, thanks. So, so, Jeremy, let me ask you this because you and I talk a lot about soft skills, is the interpretation of this data a soft skill? What, what data? I was, I was talking to some, chatting with someone on the back end trying to get them to come up to, to speak on their expertise. Uh, please refresh my memory, I'm sorry. Oh, sure, and Sarah, jump in here as well. But so we, we have the assessments, they come with some data, but eventually, I'm a single individual as an IO, although I'm not an IO, I'm pretending to be an IO, and I've got now all of this data, and I've got to interpret it to really put a value on each potential, you know, new employee. 
So when it comes to doing that thinking, that analysis, is that not a soft skill that needs to be developed? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a soft skill. I would say it's a technical skill and an art uh, uh, combined because you really have to have a, a, a critical mind to be able to recognize patterns, anomalies, and also see you know the larger picture with all its complexities in terms of how this person might fit uh, and based on what the needs are into the culture and the organization into their specific job roles or their skills and duties and whatnot so it, there's a, there's a huge technical aspect of it because you have to be able to understand what the what the date what the what all the data mean um, and also understanding okay this should you know the other part is identifying interesting things to talk about with the candidate you know there's some um there's some uh factors on on assessments where this should really go together with this and correlate with this but when they don't huh that's a question to talk about and that's where you can gain insight to answer your questions rather than maybe just throwing the candidate out where you can talk about the candidate give them a chance to um talk about what might be happening there and that's where that whole part of that's where the soft skill comes in tom is that communication aspect that being able to ask the right questions those communication skills that what as we say all the time what to say and how to say it to be able to draw out say less use non-binary questions to start to have a, a really good candidate interaction um and on that uh let's go over if we might to tom did that did that answer your question enough yeah, I especially like the art form. Enough. I knew you would. That's why I said it. <laughs> um, Nathan, let's go over to you, please. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, so, yeah, one, I think this conversation is is excellent. And just a couple of thoughts as I've been been listening in the background is, you know, IOs generally, <clears throat> the, the IOs building assessments and selection procedures and programs, when you think about the selection funnel, the hiring funnel, we generally live in the middle of that funnel or the bottom, middle to the bottom, right? Um, so that's where the tests sit, that's where the interviews sit, you know, et cetera. And I think we do a really good job of designing them correctly, appropriate for the jobs and competency-based, skills-based, et cetera. The, the angst that I see and uh, personally have when I'm dealing with customers and putting some of these programs in place and I'm hearing um, you know, people like Dr. Coons rep you know, represent as well is the top of the funnel is the is where people have pain. It's the pre-screens and disqualifications, right? So the example in the chat was people people get upset when a software company requires ten years of experience, but yet that company's only been in existence for five years. That's that's a realistic example, and it happens all the time. Um, and they're they're asking for hard skills that, if they have the right background and experience, can be trained and learned in a sixty day period. So why screen out somebody for a skill that they could cross train in and you can teach them and have the, a, a high performing functioning employee and it only takes 60 days of them learning that skill kind of thing. It happens in nursing and healthcare, you know, it happens across the board. Um, so so uh, that's where I see a lot of angst and concern. I think that's an area that's right for correction is at the top of the funnel. Um, and IOs just generally don't get involved there too much. Unfortunately, I wish we did. Um, the, the, I think where things are going from a legal perspective, what I've been seeing um, out there locally or domestically, federally, and, but globally as well, is there is a huge push towards automated decision-making regulations, 
right? So the candidate bill of rights and giving candidate feedback per our earlier conversation. Um, the EEOC specifically, I think they're getting their house in order after the last four years of disruption and, and, and tearing apart. Um, so the EEOC and the OFCCP are getting their houses in order and, and they're looking into the automated decision-making and that's that falls smack dab in the middle of the IO world of building assessments. And um, you'll see regulation, I think, coming at some point this year around those. Um, and globally, you're already seeing it in the EU and, and elsewhere. So. So the, the candidate bill of rights kind of approach and giving feedback and treating people fair and giving explainability and understanding of what assessment they're taking and why and what the results were, um, I think is on the horizon. And that's all excellent results, right? It's, it's needed. The problem is in the US, it's hard to, to do that for all the legal reasons that were mentioned earlier that Sarah kind of, kind of brought to, to the forefront. But- well, let me ask you, Nathan, is there, you know, when we take a look at that global perspective, is there, you know, you mentioned the EU, but is there some nations that we should be looking at in the way that they're doing it? Um, yeah, it's a good, good question, Tom. I, you know, there, um, the EU GDPR was a good start, and now there's new versions of that with the UK coming and, uh, you know, other regulations out there. Um, they're just more open to assessments and, and less risk averse from a company perspective of, of saying it's okay to give candidate feedbacks because we're not fearful that they're going to turn around and use that information to sue us for discriminatory hiring practices. So they're less fearful of those things. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know if there's a certain nation in the, in the, in the EU, but the EU regulations are somewhere to, somewhere to look and the UK is crafting some of their own as well. Um, but I, I think we're going to do our own here in the U.S. You know, the EEOC is looking at it. The White House has the Office of Science and Technology Programs or Policies, OSTP, and they're, they have an RFI out now around this. They're calling a biometric screening, but I think it'll probably get reconfigured to include more automated decision making. So everybody how, is looking into it. How does this reflect on American organizations which are hiring internationally? Are they using the same metrics or standards for international clients as well? Yeah, <laughs> there's, the, there's the golden nugget, right? Um, uh, think about it. Also, you can think of it more locally that, you know, Illinois, the state of Illinois passed the video interviewing law and New York City just passed uh, their AI regulation for New York City. Um, and, you know, I guarantee you every company in New York City is hiring, hiring people from other states as well or right. whatever. So, so the, the, the cross-boundary applications of these legislations, um, I don't think are very well defined and are going to get figured out in court at some point. Well, here we go to court again. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much, Nathan. Uh, Jeremy, we're almost to the top of the hour. Do you want to do a little plug for CBOC and maybe talk about uh, when we'll be getting back together again and what we'll be talking about? Yeah, so next, uh, ooh, choose your side on unlimited vacation in the workplace. So this, <laughs> that'll, be a, that'll be a fun one, good old free-for-all. Uh, there, you know, there are studies out there and there's experiences out there. So we do have um, some, you know, all kinds of data. And also we have opinions and emotions on is, you know, what's the benefit of just giving someone unlimited vacation? And does it matter when you're talking about the highly motivated and highly skilled 
versus other ends of the spectrum, like the low skill, low motivation. Um, so uh, we will leave it at that. Uh, there's some good resources over on cbock.com. If you go to resources and shop, there's a, a white paper that we put out recently, Donna, the new workforce uh, with a couple interesting, uh, it's uh, full of infographics with data and analytics, yada, yada. So there's a couple uh, different things there. So check that out. There's also lots of good blogs. Uh, we're on no specific time constraint. We're going to, I want to, Linda Ann's got her hand still raised. So I want to go over to Linda Ann before we close up here. Um, I will mention when you, if, if you're coming to the event, feel free to invite someone, feel free to invite your boss. And also when you click on any of the events, when you give that, that promise ring, I say on the LinkedIn, you can invite other people. You can invite actually up to 1000 uh, people in your particular network. So whenever you see an event on the CBOC company page on LinkedIn and you click attend, it changes attend to invite and you can invite up to a thousand of your uh, friends, followers and, and fellow IOs to join in on these. So please feel free to leave. It is one o'clock Eastern time here. Please feel free to leave if you need to. Um, and we'll go over to Linda Ann for a comment question that you may have. Oh, and I will say special thanks. Thank you, Nathan, uh, so much. So glad you got you shared what you did and contributed here. So special thanks to Nathan Mondragon. Uh, Linda Ann, go, go ahead. I just um, I had two, two comments. One was, um, you know, with regard to Mark's uh, comments earlier, you know, as far as the EEOC and, and also with, um, with some of the things going on with, with Nathan, I think that, you know, people can ask whatever questions they want. If, if it's not required and people put the information in that particular application, that's up to you. You know, here in Colorado, they passed a law that they can't, we cannot ask anybody's previous salary anymore. Um, and that's to help prevent, you know, any gender gap issues and, and things like that. But again, that has crossed state um, with regard to what Nathan was saying. That's, that has had cross state line implications because people are going outside of the state to, they'll actually say, you know, they don't want Colorado applicants um, to that. The other question I had was um, with regard to the, the assessments and things, you know, especially since it's further down in the funnel, you know, do they really measure potential versus skill set, current skill set? Because what people are seeing is that, you know, it's better to hire for a person's potential versus their track record. So that was my kind of question. Usually we're looking at predictive, the predictive nature of someone's behavior. So I would say it's more towards the, the potential. My, my eyes just shifted, my whole Zoom screen shifted on me. Uh, because we're looking at, uh, these are, these are a pre, you know, more or less predictive tests. Um, so there's just the, the short answer to that. Does anyone have a longer answer that they would want to provide? I think Mark, I think Mark wants to jump in. Oh, there. Yes. Mark. I see you now, Mark. There you go. Uh, yeah, uh, in response to what Linda said, yeah, you can ask anything you want on applications. Uh, the, I mean, you, you know, you could probably ask about convictions if you wanted to. Uh, but it opens, it opens you up to legal exposure, at least it used to. Now, you know, if the EEOC is in disarray and they're no longer doing any test cases, you're probably pretty safe and you can get away with it if you want to. Age discrimination is something that's really difficult to prove if you're the plaintiff. Uh, it's hard to establish a prima facie case. But if the EEOC goes in 
and starts hammering on some of these larger organizations. I mean, we have the largest employer here where I live asking these kind of questions. And so, you know, let's say the EOC wanted to make a test case out of it and they got people to apply with similar backgrounds and one listing their uh, dates of graduation is more recent than the other. And one gets an interview, one doesn't, one may get hired, one may not. Uh, you know, they've got a prima facie case of age discrimination there. So, but if the EEOC is understaffed uh, and, you know, just does, and no longer has the uh, gumption to do this, then, eh, you know, employers can get away with pretty much anything. How's that for a response? <laughs> um, and thank you very much, Deborah and Nathan and Mark and Linda and for all of your assistance today and all your, your advice and comments in the conversation. Jeremy, I've, I've got one last question I want to ask you, especially for you know, younger IOs, maybe some of those people who are still in graduate school. You talked about the art form of this. So how do I get good as an artist? <laughs> well, you have to love it for first off. It can't be something that you uh, you it, it's it's on your to do list, and it's it's like anything else. It, you get a new phone, and you don't know how to use it, but you start to look into it. You get comfortable with it. So if you're new, if you're newer in the IO field or you're st you're still in school, start to really dive into some peer reviewed studies. You're not gonna you know start to start to if you don't understand something, then then look it up. Uh, look up Mental Measurements Yearbook, and um, which is probably available through your organization's uh, library database, um, Burroughs. Um, if you don't, I think it's like two what two hundred something dollars uh, to look through it. But what Mental Measurements Yearbook is is it gives you you have reviewers, and you, it's usually at least two reviewers for any assessment that you could really ever imagine that's out there. And they review it. The, they review all the properties of it. You know the validity, the reliability. But you can start to understand on the back end. And the more and more you become comfortable with these assessments, the more and more you get excited about them. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at some sample reports you find. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at the actual technical manuals that are just what they say. They're technical manuals. So there's a lot of there's a lot of data, there's correlation, there's everything you can imagine in there, but you start to get familiar and that assessment becomes really your your knowledge base. And then you can look at another assessment and then you can see uh, what what kind of situations, high versus low stakes situations you can use there. But you start to get more and more familiar. And once you're familiar with five, then you're it's easier to look at ten. And then it's easier to look at the next five. But um, so the main thing, and that's really just fundamental. You know, after that, it's really starting to get into what what are the trends. You know, what are the trends with what are the good and bad trends with AI, for example. Um, you know, like Nathan was talking about, when are these assessments used? And you can start to look at different case studies, and you know, what would what would you do? So you can start to immerse yourself in this if you have a passion for it, and if you aren't you know data crunch averse. And you like to geek out a little bit with these things. And the bottom line is, and I, I see this every time I talk to an IO and I see this in the chat, IOs get into IO because they truly want to make a difference. They truly want to be helpful. And there's a lot of altruism that goes into IO. And that's one thing I noticed that sets us apart from some, some of the other fields that exist. And that alone 
can help IOs look in a more complex and critical thinking manner at here's an, here's what this assessment tells us about this potential candidate, but wait, we don't just look at this at face value because we've looked at the technical manual, because we understand this shouldn't go with this, so let's talk about it. This makes sense, this doesn't. How can that really help with your soft skills with the candidate experience? And also, let's, let's face it, especially if you're working with external clients and you're a consultant, you have to be able to have those soft skills to talk with your clients about what does this potential candidate actually mean for your organization for the short and for the long term based on the interpretation and the results here and based on the interview and based on the debrief. So have fun with it as have fun with it. That, that's my short answer, Tom. Have fun with it. Great. Mark, let's go over to you. Okay. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, reference checks uh, because it's, it is a form of a test. And I, you know, I've heard lately a lot of people don't do reference checks and that, that's fine. I've got no problem with that. Uh, the only thing that I would say is if you don't do the reference checks, and this depends on the job that you're hired for, uh, although I could say that it goes all the way to the top sometimes, uh, you open yourself up to um, negligent hiring lawsuits. In other words, if you hire somebody, you fail to check or check any references at all. Something happens and they engage in workplace violence. Well, the victim or the victim's family can come back and sue the organization. And this has happened before. Uh, some, a lot of times it's settled out of court, but still it's an expense to the organization that you want to keep in mind. So you, you know, in doing due diligence, you really need to uh, think about, okay, it's, it may be the final test, but uh, nevertheless, it's, uh, you know, in, nobody likes doing them, uh, it, but it's, some, it's one of those things that it's probably uh, safer to do than not to do. It's definitely one of the tests you don't want to fail. Uh, <laughs> on that note, Jeremy, I think we're all done with the questions. Uh, it's been a great discussion today, and thanks again to everybody who contributed. Uh, please join us again. And, Jeremy, I'm going to send it back to you to count us down and take us out of here. Yeah, I'll give everyone 10 seconds. So Nathan posted a uh, podcast episode that's up for Work Matters where Nathan talks about um, the background of design, the best approach to hiring evaluations or pre-hire examinations that screen candidates during the hiring uh, process. And as you all, I'm sure know, he's chief IO psychologist at HireVue. I'm going to take a listen to that. And that link is in the chat. So I'll give everyone one, two, three seconds. All right, that's all you get. See you next week. Closing out in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.